Our scripture passage for today comes from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to see all of you today. I want to welcome those of you who are visiting us here in person, especially if you're visiting for the first time. And of course, we want to welcome those of you who are watching us in the live stream portion or later on today or this week. We hope and pray that you had a wonderful week in spite of all the challenges of beautiful weather. I hope uh, the Lord was able to visit and bless you throughout the week. Let's ask now for the Lord to bless us as we prepare to hear his word. Please join me in prayer. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us in spite of all the challenges that we continue to face, in spite of all the turmoil that we are confronted with. Lord, we trust that you are the God who is with your people, for you are the promise-keeping God. You are the faithful one. And Lord, we ask now that you would keep the promise that you gave to us on this day, that every time that your people gather around, the name of your son, Jesus, on this day of the Sabbath, you would visit your people and minister through the preaching of the word. And so, Father, I ask that you would keep that promise now and minister to us, that you would bind all of our wounds, that you would heal all of our frustrations, and that you would help us to overcome any sickness that we have within so that we could have hope as your people. (coughs) We ask now that you would minister (coughs) and speak through your servant, For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Excuse me. A long, long time ago, way before Jesus was born, 400 years before Christ to be exact, there was a man that went around by the name of Socrates. Socrates, for those of you who've studied philosophy, you may recognize your name, his name, excuse me, he is considered the father of Western philosophy, and rightly so. You see, Socrates was the teacher of Plato, who in turn was the teacher of Aristotle, who was in turn the teacher of Alexander the Great, and hence, Socrates considered one of the most brilliant men of the ancient world. Now, with that established, here's a little thought experiment. Imagine for just a moment there is an evil time traveler who goes back into ancient Greece, kidnaps Socrates and transports him here into 2021 in the middle of Times Square, leaving him to fend for himself. Here's the question. What do you think are the chances of Socrates making it to the end of the week? Probably not so good, right? Because unless a kind stranger helps him out, most likely Socrates is going to end up on life support in some county hospital somewhere, or maybe even dead in some dark alley in the city. Why? Well, Because in spite of all of that brilliance, in spite of all of that knowledge that he possesses, it is of no practical use when it comes into living in today's world. And sad to say, many Christians fall into this same tragic scenario. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. So many Christians today, they know a lot. They know a lot of Bible. 
They know a lot of theology. They know a lot of doctrine. They know a lot of Sunday school answers. But the moment they walk out of their church doors, it's as if they don't know how to apply any of that knowledge into their everyday lives. As as a result, they end up like Socrates in Times Square. Oh, they may not literally be on life support, and they may not end up physically dead, but their faith is functionally on life support. It's as if their faith is functionally dead, to where if you compared how they live their lives, it's as if they can be just as foolish as their non-Christian, non-believing pagan counterpart. And the question that I want to ask is, how do we make sure that none of the Christians in this room or those watching end up like that? We're beginning a new sermon series through the book of Proverbs entitled The Pursuit of Wisdom. And today, I want to talk about how we can avoid ending up like the proverbial Socrates in Times Square by talking about how we can be wise. How we can be wise? Yeah, how we can be wise. You see, contrary to popular thinking, Being wise is not simply the interest or it's not only relevant to the nerdy brainiac who's only thinking of esoteric cerebral things. No, according to scripture, being wise is practical knowledge that if you live it out, allows you to live a flourishing and fulfilling life, the life that God wants you and I to live, which is why he commands his people to cultivate wisdom, to become wise people. And so that is what we're going to consider as we look at the first seven verses of the opening chapter of the book of Proverbs. And as we do, we're going to see three things that we need to apprehend and apply to ourselves if we want to be wise people. First, we need to understand the prerequisite for being wise, the prerequisite for being wise. Then (coughs) we need to understand the purpose of being wise. And then we're going to end it with the way to become wise, the prerequisite for being wise, the purpose of being wise, and the way to become wise. Those are the three things that we're going to look at. So let's begin with the first, the prerequisite for being wise. You know, once you start attending university or college, you discover this thing known as the prerequisite courses or what we sometimes just call the prereqs, right? And what are prerequisite courses? Well, they are the courses that you must take first if you want to take later courses in a certain major that you want to graduate with, right? So let's say, for example, (coughs) you are an aspiring pre-med student wanting to get into med school, and you hear that in order to get into a good medical school program, you have to take organic chemistry, which is usually a second year, you know, chem, chem track, right? And let's say you come in as an incoming freshman, very ambitious, very eager to become pre-med, and you sign up organic chem but a fellow student in the class finds out that you're a freshman and they say did you take the prereqs for this course which is like chem 101 and you say no I didn't and then this fellow student says dude you're gonna fail this class because before you can take this course you first must take the prerequisite you must take chem 101 but you know what you don't care you brush him off and you take the course anyway what happens you fail right Because you need to do the prerequisite first if you want to learn organic chemistry. And guess what? That same principle applies when it comes to learning wisdom. Before you can actually learn wisdom, you first must fulfill the prerequisite for learning wisdom, which begs the question, what is the prereq to be wise, to learn wisdom? Well, we get a good hint in verse 1. Read it again with what it says. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, (coughs) king of Israel. Now, when most people read this verse, they tend to interpret it as simply Solomon identifying himself as the writer of the words you're about to read. It's kind of like, hey, guys, just want to let you know that it's me, Solomon, you know, son of David, who's about to tell you what I'm thinking right now, right? 
But according to Old Testament scholars, Solomon is doing way much more than simply identifying himself as the writer, evidenced by his use of an epithet. An epi what? Epithet. And what is an epithet? An epithet is a literary device where a person uses a description to describe unique characteristics of a person, which in this case, himself, Solomon is employing an epithet upon himself. And what is the epithet? The king of Israel. Solomon wants to make sure that before anything starts, that you recognize him as the person of authority, as the one in charge, as someone who is your superior and therefore someone whom you are inferior to. Now you hear that and you can't help but to wonder, man, is this Solomon guy some narcissist? Is he one of those egomaniacs who needs to go out of his way and always include his credentials when he meets, him, meets someone new for the first time? Like, hi, I'm James, Ph.D. Hi, I'm Jill, J.D., M.D., CEO of such and such company. Is that what's happening? No, not at all. You see, Solomon is trying to teach us indirectly what the prerequisites is in order to learn wisdom. And that is having a teachable spirit. A teachable spirit. Now, what is a teachable spirit? Well, it's simply the mindset that says, I don't know everything. And because I don't know everything, I need to depend on someone who is greater than me, someone of authority, someone of credentials, someone whom I can recognize as someone I need to depend on to fill in the blanks that I currently don't possess the answers to. This is why before he utters any words of wisdom, before he says any proverb, Solomon says, hey, from the get-go, let's establish the pattern. Let's get the prereqs out of the way. I am your teacher. You are my student. You submit to me. I am above you. In other words, have a teachable spirit before you read anything else. Otherwise, Solomon would say, you aren't unteachable. Unteachable. Now, what is an unteachable person? Well, it's just what you would imagine. It's the opposite of what a person with a teachable spirit has. It's the mindset that says, I know everything, and I don't need anyone to tell me anything in terms of how I should think, how I should feel, how I should behave, or how I should look at myself or the world I live in, right? Now, the Bible has a word for such individuals who think this way, and that's simply the fool. The fool. And here's the thing about Proverbs. Proverbs would say that a person can be highly accomplished, someone who can be highly educated formally, and yet because they don't have a teachable spirit, which happens often, they are still a fool. We see it all the time. Case in point, when I was in college, I was part of the Navy ROTC program. I think I might have shared this with you in a previous sermon. And one day, my commanding officer apparently uh, uh, told a true story that happened a long time ago of a Navy uh, captain, a battleship, where he was doing night maneuvers off the coast of the Pacific late into the night where it was very foggy, when without warning, the captain receives this awareness from his watch officer. Captain, there is a light coming straight out towards us off the starboard bow. The captain hears this and he immediately tells his communications officer, give this light message to the other side. Warning, we are on a collision course. Move your position, 20 degrees port. To which the captain gets back this response, negative. You move your position, 20 degrees port. Now, the captain is used to giving orders, not receiving it. And so he was very upset when he heard this message. And so he sent the following message. I am a captain, and I am ordering you to move your position 20 degrees port. To which he got back this response. I am a seaman second class, pretty much the lowest of the rung. 
please move your position 20 degrees port, Captain. At this point, the commanding officer was furious, he was angry, and he sent this very ominous warning. I'm in a U.S. Navy battleship armed with the most advanced, most dangerous artillery of the U.S. Navy. Move your position 20 degrees port now. <coughs> to which the captain got back this response. I am a lighthouse, captain. Please move your position 20 degrees port now. Wisdom would say that if you want to learn it, you must first have a teachable spirit. It doesn't matter if you're the commanding officer of a multi-million dollar ship with the most technological advanced weaponry. It doesn't matter if you're the most brilliant ancient philosopher known to man. If you don't have a teachable spirit, then you don't meet the prerequisite for wisdom because the prerequisite for wisdom is always having a teachable spirit. Once you have that set, you're ready to move on to the next step of becoming wise. And to tell you what that is, I go to my next point, <coughs> the purpose of being wise. Now, in our day and age, we don't usually call someone a wise person. Oh, we'll call someone smart, we'll call someone brilliant, we'll call someone intelligent, but very rarely will we say that a person is wise. Why is that? Well, I think it's because we tend to have a very kind of shallow, superficial vision of what we think a wise person looks like. Because if you ask the average Joe, what do you imagine when you think of a wise person? They probably think of some old man dressed up in white robes, you know, speaking as if he's a f living fortune cookie, playing the bamboo flute or something like that. Not that there's anything wrong with playing a bamboo flute, by the way, right? But that's how most people think, you know, of a wise person. But the Bible would say that is nowhere near the picture of what a wise person is. And so the question is, how does Scripture describe a wise person? Well, <coughs> it's complicated complicated and when i say that i'm not being facetious i'm being literal it's literally complicated listen again to our passage starting in verse two where we read to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight to receive instruction and wise dealing in righteousness justice and equity to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying the words of wise and their riddles come on back here's solomon has just described what wisdom is. And it's very convoluted. It's very complicated. I mean, there's so much involved with how to describe wisdom. I mean, just within the span of three verses, he talks about it in three different ways. In verse 2, he says wisdom is instruction or insight. Then in verse 3, he says it's righteousness, equity, and justice. And then in verse 4, he says it's prudence for the simple. It's, it's what? Discretion to youth? Solomon has just described wisdom seven different ways without explaining how they all interact. And he's doing this on purpose. Do you know why? Because Solomon is trying to let us understand that wisdom, it's not so simple. Wisdom is very complicated. It's very confusing. Wisdom is very sophisticated. It's very suave. And he wants to make sure that you grasp the complexity and sophistication of wisdom. Why? so that you would understand the nature of the world. Let me explain. You know, my older three kids over there, you know, they're learning some advanced math these days, right? They're learning prime numbers, fractions, integers, and so forth. And one of the things that they've discovered is that if the solution or the answer to a math problem is very complicated, that means the problem itself is very complicated too. And that's exactly the point that Solomon is trying to make. 
Solomon is trying to tell us that wisdom is very complex, it's very complicated, it's very sophisticated because the problem it's trying to solve, i.e. the world, is complicated as well. It's sophisticated too. In other words, Solomon is trying to tell us that the world is not so simple. It's not so black, it's not so white, it's not so easy to figure out. It is filled with riddles and quandaries, and sometimes there are exceptions to the rules, and sometimes the rules don't even ever apply. The world is so confusingly chaotic, you see? And as a result, living in it can be very, very problematic. What do you mean it's problematic, Pastor John? Well, listen to again what it says in verse 4. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Here Solomon identifies a specific type of person that wisdom is trying to reach, that wisdom is trying to target with its wisdom. Who is it? It's the simple. The simple. And who are the simple? Well, simply put, they are the immature who don't have much experience with the confusing world. And of course, this could be referring to little children, literally, or it can refer to grown adults who still think or act in childish ways, okay? And the reason Solomon would say that wisdom targets such people because those are the people that the world seeks to destroy with its sophistication, with its complexity. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Imagine for a moment a young father decides to take his toddler boy out to the toy store to buy him a brand new toy. Bad mistake, by the way, Dad. But let's just say this is a brand new father, doesn't really know much about parenting. And he wants to, you know, bless his son by taking him to a toy store. And the moment he walks in, without warning, he starts screeching at the top of his lungs. Ah! And the father looks out, what's wrong, what's wrong? And the son is pointing to a fuzzy teddy bear. And he says, I want that, I want that, I want that. And so the father quickly grabs a teddy bear, gives it to his son so he'll be quiet. And he immediately goes to the checkout because he realizes it was a bad mistake. And he wants to get out of there as soon as possible. And while he's waiting in line, the son is just fixating on the teddy bear. He's holding it. He's so focused on it. And the father thinks, okay, disaster avoided. And then 10 seconds later, he hears his son. Ah! He looks down again, see what's the problem. And lo and behold, on the other side, right next to that boy, is another kid with a shiny toy robot making all these sophisticated moves making all of these complex sounds, giving off such a sophisticated way of interacting, moving in all these directions, emanating all these cool lights. And his son has just forgotten this bear that he was so focused and fixated on just a moment ago. And the father tries to pick it up and give it to his son, but the son is not even looking. He's just so looking upon this new interest. Now let's change it up a bit. Instead of the son letting go of the teddy bear's arm, he lets go of his father's hand in a crowded mall. Now you have a situation where something sophisticated, something complex has created disaster upon that little boy. And Solomon says, that's why you need wisdom. That is the purpose of wisdom, to prevent that kind of alluring away from the most important thing that you need to hold on to, focus on, fixate on indefinitely. You see, wisdom is designed to counteract and to countermeasure the enchantment of a complex world, sophisticated world, that tries to get you to stop focusing on something that is so crucial that you should never take your eyes off on. But therein lies the question. What is this important thing that wisdom wants to make sure we don't ever lose our focus on? 
Well, that leads me to the final point, the way to become wise. Read just the first half of verse 7 where it says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here Solomon tells from the get-go how to become wise. You need something. And what is it? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? Because you would think that Solomon could simply just say, the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, but he says, no, it's the fear of the Lord. Why does he say that? Well, let's think about it. How do most people react when they're confronted with something that they are terrified of? How do people normally behave when they see something or someone that they are so frightened of, something that they fear? Don't they have a tendency to always keep their eyes locked on that thing they're so afraid of? They never lose attention away from this object of fear. Like, for example, let's say you're home one night and you're watching your favorite Netflix show, favorite, favorite Netflix show, you're binge-watching it, when without warning, you see a little mouse sneaking up from behind your TV, right under it, right? And let's say you're terrified of mouse. Are you still going to be focusing on that favorite TV shows with all of its complex drama and sophisticated character development? Are you, are you going to be able to focus on that? No, your eyes are locked on that furry little rodent, right? You're not going to lose sight of that thing because you fear it, right? Now, when Solomon says that it's the fear of the Lord that is the source of wisdom, what is he telling us? He's telling us that you need to always see God as the person you keep your eyes fixated on. You never let anything around you, no matter how distracting, no matter how sophisticated, no matter how complex it may be, distract you from this thing. Because that is the one that you should fear. That is the one that you should be fixated and focus on the most. Now we understand, don't we, what the important thing is that the Bible says we should always be focusing on. It's the Lord. The Lord is what the world is trying to enchant you away with all of its sophistication, all of its complexity, and its wisdom that's saying, keep your eyes on him. Consider this quote from theologian Søren Kierkegaard. He once said this, quote, Father in heaven, what is man without you? What is all that he knows, vast accumulation though it may be, but a chipped fragment if he does not know you? What is all his striving, even if it could encompass a whole world, but a half-finished work if he does not know you? You, the one who are one thing and who are all, may you early at the dawn of day give to the young man the resolution to will one thing. As the day wanes, may you give to the old man a renewed remembrance of his first resolution, that the first may be like the last and the last like the first, in possession of a life that is willed on one thing. But alas, This has not come to pass. Something has come in between. Each day and day after day, something is being placed in between. Delay, blockage, interruption, delusion, corruption. So may you give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend that one thing. May you give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend that one thing. According to Kierkegaard, in order to be wise, You must see God as the most important thing that you never take the eyes of your heart off of. Or as Kierkegaard puts it, your one thing. That's what it means to fear God. To where you recognize him as the most important thing of all. To where you will never forsake, never forget him. No matter how distracting, no matter how enchanting this sophisticated world may be. And no matter how hard it's trying to get you to do that, you won't let that happen. 
But therein lies the question. How in the world do you get to a point of your spiritual life where you see God as this important? To where you fear him like this? Well, we get the answer here in Psalm chapter 130. Take a listen to what it says here, starting in verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared? According to the psalmist, the way you can see God is the most important thing of all, i.e. fear him, is when you experience his forgiveness. Now that is so weird because that leads to a tangent but relevant question is, why would you fear someone who has forgiven you? Because usually you would think the opposite is true. You would fear someone who wouldn't forgive you, right? But here is where you understand what the Bible means to fear God. When Proverbs and all of the Bible says that we are to fear the Lord, it, it does not mean that we are to be afraid of what God can do to us. Rather, it's that we fear of God being taken away from us. Let me say that again. The fear of the Lord, according to the Bible, is not being afraid of God doing something to us, i.e. judgment and condemnation. It's being afraid of him being taken away from us. And the way you get to a point where you care so much about God to where you don't want him taken away from you, is when you experience his forgiveness and his love. And the scripture makes it clear, the only way you encounter God's forgiveness is through the gospel. The gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says that God deeply, cherishingly loves you. He loves you even though he's not obligated to love you. He doesn't have to love you, and in fact, he shouldn't love you because you and I, we are such wretched, wicked sinners, evidenced by the fact that we are constantly forgetting and forsaking him to where we treat him as nothing less than a boring, bland teddy bear in a world filled with shiny toy robots, to where we see him as the least important of all. And as a result, God has every right to forget us and to forsake us, but he doesn't. Instead, he remembers us and he is relentlessly pursuing us as he did when he came into the world as a man, Jesus Christ, to suffer for your sins and my sins by dying on the cross as our savior substitute because he loves us with this kind of merciful, gracious love. And let me tell you, when you experience that love, you are going to see God for who he really is. He is the one thing. He is the most important thing of all. And you will cherish him with such fearsome love that you're going to do whatever it takes to protect that fearsome love, even if it means you have to humble yourself with a teachable spirit so you can be armed with wisdom to counteract and to countermind the wisdom of the world that's trying to persuade, trying to argue, trying to enchant you with all of its sophisticated arguments, with all of its complex philosophizing of why you should abandon your God. No, because you have been captured by the love of God in the gospel, you will be on guard and you will be filled with fortitude to arm yourself with a teachable spirit that comes in response to God's love for you and you will cultivate wisdom so that you can keep the eyes of your heart locked in on the one thing that the world is trying to get you to abandon. This is how you become wise. It's when you encounter the love of God in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And so here's my question to you, NCF. Are you wise? Are you a person filled with wisdom? 
If you're not sure, simply ask yourself, what is the one thing in your life? What are you so afraid of losing in a world that is always trying to take from you? I hope and pray that your answer is the God who loves you and the God who gave himself for you in Jesus Christ. Because that is how you begin this process, this journey of becoming a wise person. And your heart is locked and fixated on the God who is for you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this beautiful thing known as wisdom and what it entails and what it provides. Father, we live in such <coughs> an enchanted world, a world claiming to be filled with enchantments, with all of its complexity, with all of its sophistication. God, we know what it's trying to do. We know who it's trying to take away from us. And so, Father, we pray that instead of getting enamored to where we would forget and forsake you, Lord, help us to remember the power of your love and the forgiveness of our sins in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that as we navigate in this world and we are become more exposed to all the alluring enchantments of all the attractive complexity and sophistications of this world, we would not be blinded uh, by these things, but that our hearts would be fixated and attentive to the one thing that only matters, and that is you, God. Help us to be this way so that as we live in this world, we become more like your son, Jesus. We will become wise, and we would not become the fool. Would you enable us to do this now? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. We're now going to give the Lord